Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Today's guest is Hadley Archer, Executive Director of Nature United, which is the Canadian affiliate of the global environmental nonprofit, The Nature Conservancy. They are an organization working to create a world where people and nature can thrive. Hadley talks all about his connection with nature, the impact that humans are having on our planet, and the top priorities for environmental conservation in this year and beyond. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined by Hadley Archer. Hadley is the executive director of Nature United, which is the Canadian affiliate of the global environmental nonprofit, the Nature Conservancy, which is an organization working to create a world where people and nature can thrive. Hadley, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Nolan. Great to be here. Uh, so we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. You've been working in this world of nature conservancy for a long time. You worked with the WWF, not the wrestling WWF, but the World Wildlife <laughs> Fund for uh, 10 years before you've had this job. And I think executive director in 2014, you said? That's right. Yeah. So almost 20 years working in this world. Um, why did you want to get started 20 years ago, getting into this line of work? What was it like 20 years ago when you first started as well? Yeah, well, thanks, Nolan. Um, so uh, I should start by saying I'm based in Toronto, uh, traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, Huron, Wendat, and Chippewa peoples. Um, but I'm from Winnipeg originally, Treaty 1 territory. And so I have a, I, I say I'm from Winnipeg and I'm from Manitoba and that's where my roots are and that's where I'll always call home. Um, so growing up in the prairies, uh, I was really fortunate that my parents we our summer vacations were touring around staying in parks during the country actually we had a little bowler trailer that we i don't know how many tens of thousands of kilometers we put on that thing and it was all about just being out in nature and being free and exploring the natural wonders that this country has and so that that's really that that grounded me um i then kind of got interested in getting a job and going to school and went down the the business path and so I went to University of Manitoba, got a business degree. Um, and it was through that I ended up in Toronto um, working with the company Procter & Gamble. And I got an assignment in a uh, tissue making factory in Toronto. So you might be wondering, what does that got to do with the environment? I would so assume trees. Was, I would assume well, some exactly. you know, paper products. Yeah. I'm sitting there one day and walking through the plant to the cafeteria. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness, look how much stuff it takes to make something like tissue paper that most of us take for granted every day. The amount of trees, the fiber, the, the water, the energy, the chemicals. So I started, got me really curious. I'm like, where does this come from? How, how do we, how is it produced? And the more I kind of, more questions I had, the more answers I was getting, the more I just realized that how we consume stuff and how we produce stuff has such a huge impact on the planet. And I needed to know more. And I needed to go back to where I started in my, you know, early days where I was connecting with with nature and I felt like I needed to better understand the human species impact on the planet. So I went back to school and I did forestry conservation. And it was through that I realized I found an, a new career combining my business um, acumen and, and ex experience with nature and conservation. And so that's that's really where I've spent the last 
20 years or so, mostly working with companies in the private sector to try and influence change, but also more broadly. In my current organization, H United, we do a lot of work with indigenous peoples, indigenous communities and governments. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about, there's so much to, to, to get to, uh, you have such an interesting job. I think it's really cool that, so thank you for allowing us to sort of pick your brain a little bit, but like, take me back 20 years ago to when you first started, how has the conversation around Mm. conservation evolved over the last 20 years? Cause now it's obviously a lot more top of mind for people and it's a lot more, um, it's in the news quite frequently and there's a lot of movement and a lot of conversation, a lot of dollars and everything happening. But like, what was that like 20 years ago compared to now? Uh, just the general conversation uh, about nature. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, I remember taking my, my forestry degree and many of us were like, just keen. We wanted to see change happen, you know, tomorrow. Hmm. And a professor once said, Change happens, but it, it and and often can happen quickly. But there's, you need to you need to step back and understand that this stuff doesn't happen overnight. And in 20 years, I'm really the headline is a lot has changed. Uh, but if we go back 20 years, um, it was rare to see anything in the newspaper. You pick up the Winnipeg Free Press; it was rare to read anything about nature, conservation, even climate change. We weren't even talking about climate change. It was like a scary word or like we weren't using that language and now we're talking about a climate emergency right so it it was it wasn't really in the general conversation i think people about canadians have always cared about the environment they've always it's always been a top priority but we never really connected that with how we live our lives or how we run our businesses and Mm -hmm. so um when i was at procter gamble there was we thought we saw that through a cost savings lens so a lot of the conversation Mm -hmm in the business community anyway, was around, okay, how do we produce things with less stuff? So, cause we want to save money. Um, and that, that was fine. Cause that actually had an environmental benefit as well. Um, and then you get into like, fast forward to maybe 10 years ago, where climate change really started to the world and, and Canada really started to realize how serious climate change was. And, um, and the, the Paris agreement in the, in the mid to mid 2015s, I think it was t- 2015, Paris Agreement was was um, initiated globally, where countries set and you know agreed that we need to stay below two degrees warming. And then, more recently, even the last few years, we've realized that actually the nature and the climate they're both crises. Like nature loss is happening at an mm-hmm. unprecedented rate, climate um, change is happening at an unprecedented rate, and those two things are happening in the same time and space. And in fact, they're very interconnected. So. When you kind of think about the change and the scale of change that needs to happen now, as we look out to 2030 and beyond, we need to change. We need to change quickly. Mm. Um, And yes, it may be that 20 years ago, we weren't really paying attention to this in the way we needed to. But I've really seen it's been an exponential curve. If you think Mm -hmm. about it over that timeline, we're we're not a point where people understand the scale and scope of the problem many governments and companies and communities are are setting goals and setting commitments. Now we're in the decade of delivery. Like this, mm. now we need to act and we need to move. So there's been a lot of talk, a lot of conversation, yeah. a lot of planning, a lot of data, yeah. a lot of all that stuff. Um, so as like a national and global, well, global organization, 
are there universal things that can happen or, or, I mean, like a farmer in Southern Manitoba is going to have a different set of circumstances than a logger in Northern BC or, you know, someone in the Arctic that's a fisherman or whatever the case may be. So like different communities have different needs that will require different solutions. So how does that affect your work? And like, are there any universal things that just everyone has to do it or does it, does it have to be a case by case basis in every region of Canada and the world? Yeah, that's a, you know, I don't know that I've ever been asked the question that way. I really like the question. I think when it comes to climate change, which is the biggest threat to nature and biodiversity, it's the biggest threat to humanity, frankly, um, and the survival of our species. So when you look at it from that perspective, I, that's why I start there. Um, the interesting thing about climate change is there's so many different things that contribute to it. But at the end of the day, whatever we can redu- do to reduce a ton of carbon going into the atmosphere benefits everybody around the world. It's a shared problem. And every every megaton that's emitted or every megaton that's avoided or sequestered in trees and plants, for example, matters. So that's a universal problem and a universal so- set of solutions. So to your example, um, if a farmer in Southern Manitoba can better utilize nutrients to, to fertilize the, the field or uh, adopt practices like cover crops or different regenerative farming practices that sequester and store more carbon in the soil, that's going to benefit them locally. And there's going to be all sorts of a host of other benefits around biodiversity and water filtration and air quality, et cetera. But it's also going to benefit loggers and people living in Northern BC. And similarly, if, if logging practices can be, can, we can protect old growth forests and where we do log, we can log in a way that is that, again, um, supports more carbon sequestration and storage in the forests over the long haul, then that's going to benefit people in southern Manitoba. And, and that is true around the world. So that that is for sure a universal um, truth and solution. The other thing, and I've kind of touched on this, is the other thing that's universal is nature provides so much of the solution for climate. And obviously, we need to protect nature from a, a biodiversity and, and an environmental perspective. And so investing in nature as a key part of the solution or set of solutions, that's universal. Mm. And again, how that plays out in different geographies is different. But what we do know is that nature can provide about a third of the solution up to 2030 to addressing our climate challenge. Mm. So to meet those Paris agreements, the, the, the commitments that countries made um, in the Paris agreement, one third of that solution can be found in nature. So if we invest in nature, natural systems to continue to function as healthy ecosystems, natural systems, that that's good for climate change, it's good for biodiversity, and it's good for people. And so that's another universal. And I think the last one I would just point to is just if we can consume less stuff as a species, um, certainly in this, in our part of the world, we like Canada, to be honest, isn't, doesn't have a great, we don't rank very well. There's a lot of things we rank well on globally. We're one of the, the most, the highest emissions per capita and the, high, the heaviest footprint, if you will, environmental footprint of any nation. So anything we can do to reduce our consumption of stuff and, you know, everything we do, simplify our lives. Again, that'll have a ripple effect. Um, and that's true everywhere, you know, that some, you know, almost 8 billion people on the planet, everyone eating, consuming, moving around, that all has an impact. Reduce, reuse, and recycle. They were right back in 
20 years exactly. ago, whenever that came up, 70s, or I don't know when that came up. Exactly. I hear a lot of people saying, that's such a bad way to introduce this question. You know, like I, people are saying, but often the conversation, <laughs> yeah, often the conversation you hear is like, oh, we don't even know the technologies that are going to be invented to solve some of the problems and kind of just like kicking the can down the road a little bit. Um, obviously, that is some like inevitably true that there will be inventions to help with these problems, <clears throat> excuse me, but do you subscribe to the fact that we need to wait until something new is invented before we solve these or like that seems like a bit of a a bit of a not a not a smart way to approach this problem but i hear yeah, lots of people of saying hair, yeah, yeah. Uh, so like what are your thoughts on that well there, no we can't wait but the cool thing is there's going to be new technologies that we don't yet have that are going to help and going to be critical in the future but what we do know is there are technologies that have been around since the beginning of time Mm. And here's one, plants. We all learned about photosynthesis when we <laughs> went to school, right? So plants, trees, grasses, but, you know, green leafy materials have been sequestering and storing carbon in the material, in the plants and trees themselves and in the soils for forever, right? Ever, ever since they've been on the planet. So there's a technology that we can already today invest more heavily in, whether it's through restore, like protecting really important carbon rich intact systems, plants, forests, grasslands, wetlands. We can restore degraded systems. And the ones that we do need to use and manage, which we do, right? We we consume stuff. We need to derive things from the natural world. We do that in the way in the smartest possible way. So that whether it's farming or forestry, you know, or mining, we're very conscious of the of the impact on the planet. So let's use technologies that we already exist. They're in many cases free or very cost effective, and they produce a host of benefits. The second thing is there's technologies that we have today. There's approaches, techniques, tools we have that we just know work. Like to the farming example, like whether it's cover cropping um, for our nutrient management or just smarter nutrient management, um, no-till or low-till. These are things that farmers know how to do in many cases are already doing. And so we we can deploy um, different technologies to help with that. Often the barriers aren't technology, right? They're economic mm. or education or just you know, there's some barrier and with, with some modest incentives and some support, you know, these things can be adopted. And then there's technologies that are, that are just being developed, you know, like electric vehicles, who would have thought even five years ago that we'd see every major car manufacturer pretty much in the world producing uh, electric vehicles. And mm -hmm. in some cases, you know, we're already seeing states saying that by certain dates, they're gonna phase right. out combustion engines. So yeah, new technologies will be coming, continually coming, but there's ones like renewable energy, for example, it's just as cost-effective now to use solar and wind as it is to use coal. Right. So, and that was not true 10 years ago. So we gotta get on with using what we have. There's already so many tools in the toolbox that we can deploy. Um, we can't wait yeah. for some engineer or scientist to figure out some new whiz bang thing that may or may not work. We just got to get on with it. Yeah. Some silver bullet. That's such a human thing to just want the, you know, they take a pill and it'll solve the problem. Whereas it's not that simple. Um, going from sort of new technologies to old ways of knowing uh, indigenous communities have been right. protecting and stewarding the land since time began. 
Um, how are sort of those indigenous ways of knowing um, affecting your work and how are you trying to encourage and increase the amount of uh, those types of solutions in our everyday lives? Yeah, I mean, uh, so true that, you know, in, in, in this country, right, indigenous peoples have been um, stewarding lands and waters since time immemorial and many of the places we work, you know, document, they can go back as far as 13, 14,000 years, where there were large populations of people living very harmoniously with animals and, and the natural environment, and very much with that that stewardship ethic and mindset. Um, so, and, and we also know that in Canada and globally, Indigenous people, when they are managing lands in that way, biodiversity is higher, and biodiversity is protected to a greater degree than even national parks. For example, um, so and an indigenous people's territory encompasses some eighty percent of the world's biodiversity. So if we could, if we can support indigenous communities to to land to manage their lands and waters, their traditional territories, in ways that are more consistent with how they've been doing that, you know, in in th for the thousands of years gone by, and kind of integrate that with scientific knowledge, so that that indigenous way of knowing and working with uh, and living with scientific knowledge, and we can bridge that gap um, and bring those ways of knowing together. Mm. Absolutely. And we're seeing that in many places where Nature United works um, in Manitoba, in British Columbia and Northwest Territories. And we're just seeing that the, the power of doing that. And in many cases, those communities, they live, they're on the ground. They've lived there for a long, long time. They will live there for a long time. So they have a vested interest. Mm. So they have that knowledge and understanding and 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 culture, and they also have people that live there that want to continue to make a living off the land. And um, they plant their many of the communities we work with, indigenous communities, they their planning horizon is is not you know next quarter or even you know the next <laughs> yeah. year. It's yeah. seven generations. Right. So they're thinking way yeah. out into the future. Yeah. So how does that support look for the average person? Is it economical support? Is it just giving them more um, autonomy almost with the land or what, what, how, how does, how does supporting movements like that work for the average Canadian or average Manitoban? Yeah. I mean, obviously it varies community by community, nation by nation. You know, every, every sovereign nation um, is unique and has its own set of circumstances. But what we've found is in general terms, it's about supporting uh, nations to be at the decision-making table and supporting communities to have a voice and to have um, a role in, and a say in how resources are managed. From the beginning too, not just after there's already a right, catastrophe. Right, after it's happened, yeah. yeah. Um, it also is around ensuring that they have, um, their, their, they have the right governance structures, mm. both in the communities, but also with respect to other non-Indigenous governments um, and in and, and the private sector. So they, they need to have the, the say in the decision-making. They also need to have uh, a role in the governance of these resources. And in many cases, these, these communities, um, they, need, they need support to build capacity in their communities to do everything from land use planning to wildlife monitoring to um, getting youth on, out on the land, um, having guardian programs, so people employed by the community out monitoring lands and waters. So in many cases, it's about providing support, uh, financial support, technical support, uh, if that's what nations need, um, and 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 to help them 
build that next generation of, of leaders. So again, it varies, certainly varies by region, but often what we do is we're, at, we're asked to, to support nations in, in that variety of different ways. And also networking and helping to connect nations across, not just across Canada, but with, with other like-minded communities um, and governments around the world. Yeah, you and your colleague Marshall came and spoke with the Winnipeg Foundation a couple of weeks ago now and talked. I, I I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about sort of the economic outcomes and the and the and the conversations you were having about really empowering co- different communities wherever they are economically, as opposed to just w- what we've been doing previously and not really supporting them in that way. So can you can you just I guess the question is, how is your group? thinking economically when proposing and developing climate solutions for different uh, regions? Well, we've certainly learned that um, in in particular working with Indigenous communities, and this is true of non-Indigenous communities as well, but you can't separate out the economic and human well-being Mm. from the natural and environmental considerations. They absolutely fundamentally go hand in hand. And and so when we think about supporting economic development, so we're a conservation organization, right? We're interested in ensuring the protection and, and, and say, you know, good management of lands and waters. But when we're working, we know that has solutions for nature have to be solutions for people mm. and for solutions to be um, beneficial for people, they have to consider human well-being and economic um, support as well. So, so that's how we get into the realm of economic development and, you know, I'll give the example in Manitoba, we're working, um, the, the team in Nature United is working with with nine different First Nations whose traditional territories overlap uh, a very large area where there's a, a forestry tenure. So FML2, as it's known affectionately uh, in, in our team, right? Forest management license number two. So there's a there's a an area that's managed by the provincial government. It's about 10 million hectares um, hectares in size. And that, if you draw the lines on a map, it overlaps nine different um, First Nations traditional territories. And so we're working with those nations in a variety of ways, but including how to help them um, have a have a say in the decision-making around how forestry is done in their territory mm. and how to, um, and, and some of them may want to be involved in the forestry economy, others don't, but how to figure that out and how that aligns with their, their broader land use visions or land relationship visions, as many of them are now calling them. Um, and so, you know, from an economic development standpoint, historically, those nations have never really been part of the forestry economy. They've never been part of the decision-making on how forestry is done. They've, they haven't really benefited in, in any real, lasting, meaningful way. And, and often they find out about things that are happening in their very territories, you know, either after the fact or, you know, with very little notice. So fast forward to today where those nations, many of them have um, uh, joined in a joint venture with the company who now owns the pulp mill on the paw, mm-hmm. Canadian Craft. And they're, and we're supporting them to work to figure out how to jointly manage that forestry tenure in a way that incorporates traditional values what they see for their nations around the land land use visions and economic opportunities for the nations, whether it's jobs or long-term, you know, economic growth. And so to be part of that economy, if that's what they choose to do. So there's an example where we can see how 
it's going to benefit communities economically and and through that that planning um, structure uh, a resource management structure of a forestry tenure how they can be involved in advancing um, you know different solutions that work for for people but also mm -hmm. for nature such a cool job you have every day i'm sure is different and you get to <clears throat> meet so many different people in so many different industries uh, where do you see this work going until I, I see 2030 a lot on your website and yeah. everywhere so maybe yeah. just talk about the next seven years what the focus is going to be and where you expect to find yourself uh globally locally and yeah. uh just professionally even well 2030 just to explore that for a minute um it's a really important timeline for a whole bunch of reasons um that's a time where we have to really have bent the curves on emission reductions and on nature loss. So we need to be, both of those are going in the wrong direction, right? Our emissions are going up and biodiversity and nature loss is going down. So in the next seven years, by 2030, we have to have shifted those curves so that we're, we're, we're reducing the amount of emissions we're putting in the atmosphere every year. And we're not, no longer are we depleting nature um, and losing species every year, but we're actually restoring nature. And so, so, and why 2030? Just because when you when you do the modeling and we're starting to hit those those points where we could start to see some real tipping points, right? Where it will be very hard, if not impossible, to reverse that damage. So it's, yeah, seven years. It doesn't sound like a long time. Um, I just turned 50 this year. Uh, so, you know, I'll be 57. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. I'll still be working. Um, so I expect to be absolutely doing, working in this field doing everything I can to help bend those curves and doing it in a way though that that really what our organization is all about is these solutions for nature have to be solutions for people. Like local communities, rural communities, they have to support good jobs and they have to support us moving forward in a way that that actually is in harmony with nature as opposed to seeing nature as a as a as a risk or a cost or to be reduced or something that is there for our use right whenever and however we want it to something that we see ourselves as part of an ecosystem and and our economies are part of a natural ecosystem half the world's gdp is reliant on a healthy nature state so it's not a luxury it's not something that we can get around to later it's not a problem that i want my kids to inherit it's a problem that i want to have helping solve so that they they can have a future as much like my past, right? Where I was fortunate to go and visit all these incredible places. I wanted to be around there for them as well. Beautifully said. Uh, a big part of that conversation is going to be policy at a national, international. It, it just, I don't tend to be the most optimistic when it comes to talking about policy and policy change and the, and the speed that we need um, governments to act in and the coordination that we need them to act in because it just seems so beyond my <laughs> scope of comprehension. But maybe I'll ask it like this, like, are there examples of recent mm. policy changes that have made impactful change in recent years that you can maybe uh, help me feel a little more optimistic about? Or, or you know, like, what, what can we do about a system of governance that seems to work pretty slow when we only have seven years to, to curb some yeah. of these uh, ideas? Yeah, and it's true, right? And governments change. And yeah, exactly. When governments change, they don't like the things that the other government did and they go the other direction, right? Which can be really challenging and frustrating. Um, can also be positive. But 
So there's absolutely a role, a critical role for policy and a role for governments to play. Um, there's no question. I mean, when it comes to nature and nature loss and climate impacts, the, in the economic terms, those are often called externalities, right? They're things that aren't really, they don't really have a cost. We don't put a proper cost on healthy functioning ecosystems, you know, and or carbon emissions in an in a, in a atmosphere that's um, conducive to, you know, a quality of life that we expect. So we don't really price those things. And so when a company or the private sector, you know, does their business and they produce products and services that you and I buy, those costs are not included. So there is a role for governments to really help us understand that those are common goods. Those are goods that society writ large relies on. And so there's a role for government to help um, protect those and um, make sure that as, as a society, we're taking care of those. Um, recent changes, and I'll, I'll speak a little bit about policy, but then I want to shift to the private sector, but um, if that's okay, but yeah. recent changes that we've seen. Um, so this country and, you know, our, our federal government has put to, made a set of commitments to reduce our overall GHG emissions, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 by up by 40%. And that's like, that's just a start, right? We need to be off, we need to be um, net zero carbon emissions by mid-century. So the 40% is the right kind of glide path to get there. And they've put significant funding, billions of dollars behind this, um, both from a nat investing in nature and nature-based climate solutions, planting 2 billion trees, um, creating programs for farmers, um, for example, to use to adopt um, regenerative farming practices, mm. funding for indigenous communities to advance indigenous protected and conserved areas. So they're they're putting their money where their where their mouth is and they're um, advancing programs and policies that will help incentivize these actions. They're also putting a price in carbon, right? And that I know is controversial, but by absolutely um, the most effective way to reduce carbon emissions is to price them whether it's through a price or a tax or, or whatever the mechanism, but you know, money you talks, money talks. Yeah. Right. So that's something this government has done. Um, and uh, they've made commitments to protect uh, 30% of our lands and waters by 2030. So, and we're seeing real progress um, in, in moving towards those goals. So there absolutely is a role for, for government, but we know that government alone can't solve this. Um, the private sector has a critical role to play. Um, businesses and industry have a critical role to play, um, and ultimately consumers. But it's harder when you get to the consumer level. You're getting to you know 40 million Canadians or 8 billion people around the world, and it's pretty hard. Many of whom are living below the poverty line, mm -hmm. and they're just going day to day, right? And they don't have the means to to pay more for organic food or what have you. So it really is about helping businesses understand that there are real risks to their business if they don't take action. And there are opportunities mm. for, for those that do take action. So it's about finding a way to do business that is actually good for nature and investing in these uh, natural systems and reducing emissions while creating new business opportunities. So, I mean, the private sector is where we'll really move the needle. And we're seeing some real positive momentum um, in Canada and globally in that regard, which is encouraging. Great to hear. Yeah. Are, are, when you speak with business owners and, and different private sector people, what, what's the, are they 
receptive to suggestions like this? Like what's the kind of general consensus of the business world that you've, that you've uh, interacted with? For sure on climate, I think the pennies dropped, right? They realized that this is a problem. It's a, it's a problem. It's a risk. And it's also something that we, we need to tackle collectively. And so most companies have now set climate goals um, to 2030 and even to 2050. They've, acknowledge that we need to phase out of fossil fuels in that timeline. They've acknowledged that we need to be at a point where we're we're actually reducing our emissions and getting to net zero emissions by 2050. And many of them are taking, like Maple Leaf Foods is a great example. In Manitoba, they're working um, with farmers um, and, and nutrient and nutrient management company to test different approaches that um, reduce carbon um, and store more carbon in the soil. So they they get that that is where they can have an impact, and they're really investing behind that and working with producers on the land. Um, when it comes to nature, though, it's that's still it's still pretty recent, right? Where companies are realizing, oh yeah, we do have an impact on biodiversity mm -hmm. as well. It's mm. problem with biodiversity is so much harder to measure and to manage. And like like I said earlier, there's one metric for greenhouse gases. It's metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. There isn't the same thing for biodiversity in nature because it's around wildlife, it's around pollution, it's around freshwater and air and you name it, right? And so there's been recent movements to try and come up with a common standardized approach to measuring that to enable companies to first in, in the first instance, figure out what their impact is and then figure out how they're going to reduce that over time and to set goals. Um, so I would say that's something to watch out for. Um, and it's just starting to really unfold. I mean, there are companies that have been doing good work on this for decades, for sure. Um, you know, Unilever, Ikea, Walmart, these are companies who've, who've been working for years on reducing their um, environmental footprint mm -hmm. through their supply chains, where they have the biggest influence through that purchasing power. Um, but that, there's a lot more work that needs to be done and mainstreamed in that area. I would imagine it runs the gamut of great companies to abysmal companies, right? Just like anything in, in life, sure. I guess. Um, switching gears a little bit, I've been writing an article for our upcoming foundation magazine about climate resiliency. And what I'm learning is, and what I already knew, I guess, is that the emergencies and the catastrophes that are coming are going to disproportionately affect vulnerable populations impoverished yeah. people, et cetera. Um, is there a way to, can you speak on this at all? Or is there a way to mitigate those outcomes or what can we do to kind of prepare for the inevitability that it's going to get worse for certain groups and, and not as bad for others? Like what, what is even the, I don't even know what the question is, but like, how do we mitigate yeah. these outcomes if possible? Well, I think maybe one important point is there's often a question, even debate around, should we focus on mitigation like climate mm. reducing emissions or adaptation so ad adapting to the changes that are happening and going to happen and the answer is we have to do both <laughs> it's not an either or we have to as quickly as we can reduce emissions and phase out of fossil fuels and invest in nature-based solutions we have to use every tool in the toolbox and we have to do it as quickly as we can and even if we are can dramatically reduce emissions warming the warming effect of, of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere will contribute to increased warming for decades to come so we're kind of locked into a trajectory the question is how bad is that trajectory um 
And everything we do now will reduce that and make it more livable in the future. So we have to do that. And at the same time, we've passed the point of um, having the luxury of choosing, right? So we, we know that we're seeing the impacts. We're seeing more flooding. We're seeing more droughts. We're seeing uh, glaciers melting. We're seeing um, invasive species increasing, right? And we're seeing the effects of climate change everywhere. Everyone is experiencing and feeling it. To your point, um, unfortunately, more vulnerable communities are feeling the impacts even greater. Um, in Canada, uh, we're, our, our Canada's warming at twice the global average. And the further north you go in the Arctic, three times the global average. Oh. So you think of northern remote communities, many of which are indigenous, many of which don't have the resources and, and access to economic opportunities that many of us in southern cities have access to. Um, they're under-resourced, underfunded. Um, they don't have energy security. They don't have food security. And they're on the front lines of climate change. And they're at the front, and they don't have the, the, the abilities um, to, to manage, as I said, in, in many of the ways that um, more Southern um, uh, populations do. So, so we, we have to then look at those solutions that um, deal with the, with the impacts of climate. And, and something I mentioned earlier about nature-based climate solutions, the really awesome thing about investing in nature is we can find solutions that do both. Take, for example, if we protect um, certain forests that, that are really important from a carbon storage and sequestration perspective, they could also be really important for helping adapt to climate change in terms of reducing soil erosion, uh, reducing um, the impacts of droughts or you know, other climate-related impacts. And so, where are those win-win opportunities where we can advance solutions that work both for reducing climate impact and for helping communities um, be more resilient in the face of in increasing climate? There's so much to do. <laughs> it's daunting. It feels, but it's also I hearing your presentation and he, and speaking with you and reading about the organization has also given me a lot of optimism because, like you said. Ex a third of the problem already exists or a third of the solutions already exist. We just need to kind of like create systems that make that um, empower those systems to be able to do what they do naturally and stuff. So what, what can the average person do? What can the average just citizen do? I mean, yeah. re reduce consumption is a big one, but is there ways to get involved donations? Um, volunteerism like what what would you recommend the average person who's like hey i want to help how can they do so i mean those are all great suggestions um i would say don't yes the problems are daunting and they can feel overwhelming but don't let that stop you from getting going right like just get started do do what feels right for you right like if you're a homeowner look at your like do some research there's so many things you can do in your home around Reduce, making your home more energy efficient, reducing use of hot water for washing your clothes, for example, and switching to cold water. Um, get your kids involved if you have kids. They're learning about this in school. My kids are coming home and telling me things, and I've been studying this for you know half my life. Um, so get started and do things where you where you live and where you can have an impact. Look beyond it at the community level. I guarantee there'll be things that are happening in your community that are already there and where you can connect with, where you can learn from, where you can get involved. Volunteering is a great example as well. There's lots of um, environmental organizations, community 
cleanups, conservation organizations. And through that, you'll learn and you'll, you'll meet people and um, you'll get, you kind of, you get the bug, right? You, and then you realize you just want to be doing more. Absolutely. There's lots of great organizations, you know, Nature United is a nonprofit. We rely on the very generous support of, of individuals and companies um, and foundations. There are thousands of organizations um, around the country um, and in every province that do great work in this regard. And I would say just get curious, like mm. learn, mm. read about this stuff. And there's, and you don't have to go to the UN website and read the latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report. In fact, please don't start there if you're just getting started because <laughs> it's not, it's not pretty, but, um, but for many people like go there because it's, this is what's happening. This is our future at stake. And, you know, when you look at these timelines in 2050, my kids will be my age. Mm. Like they'll be starting their families and, and like, there's so much we have to do but there's so much that we can actually influence while we're in our lifetimes. And so, you know, it's not like something we can keep kicking down the line. Um, we got to solve these problems. we got to solve them now. And there's so much momentum and there's, and really the last thing I would say is there's hope in action. Once we start acting and start seeing progress, it's, it's like a, you know, this virtuous cycle starts, right. And we start to see there's more, good things that are coming out of that and more positive that can happen. And uh, that's what we just say is just get started somewhere. And for everyone, that's going to be a different place. Love it. Love it. Uh, so at the end of our time together, we do a segment called Just Because. It's seven questions about the causes you care about and the effect that it's had on your life. You okay to go through those seven with us? Sure. All okay. right. Question one. Uh, we talked about this a, a little bit, but what is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? Was it was it nature and the environment? Yeah, it was, um, but I don't think I really saw it as a cause. I mm -hmm. saw it as more something that I was really curious about and connected with. Um, I'd say the first like real cause that I can remember and where I started volunteering was with Big Brothers. Mm -hmm. um, and I became a big brother and I just started to really um, see the power of volunteerism and how it could you know, make a difference in someone's life. Yeah. I always say everyone just needs one person. Like just yeah. one person to believe in them. And that's all you really need. Like it doesn't have to be a mom or a dad or anything. It's if you just have that one person that's like, Hey, you can do whatever you want. It, it, that's all a kid needs. So Absolutely. bravo. Well done. Uh, question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all, you could just snap your fingers and something would happen. What would you do in support of, of, uh, this, this fight that we're on for, for nature? Wow. That's a fascinating question. I think I would, I would sound my fingers and people would realize just how important everything we depend on is on nature. And then nature is not this separate thing that only environmentalists care about or that we'll get around to later. Like uh, everything we do, our economy, our culture, our identity is wrapped up and dependent on nature. And if we could just realize that if we could move forward as a species in a way that really understood that and embraced that, and invested in 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 nature in natural systems that will benefit us I, so i don't know whether that's uh i mean it i think a lot about this is it a, is it a consumption problem is it a greed problem is it a economic problem i think it's just we haven't really we, we need to go back where we we're talking earlier in, in the podcast around in, indigenous peoples who've been living in harmony with nature and 
everything, their language, their culture, their identity, um, their spirituality is all wrapped up in nature and realizing and recognition that we are part of nature. Like we come from the earth. We're going to go back to the earth. Right. And if we can just see that as our home and as, you know, we'll look after it better. I, so. I really like the, um, I don't know if personification is the right word, but the the fact that the, everything's alive, you, the it, the rocks are alive, the trees are alive, and if you think about it like that, you're you know you're not willing to throw your garbage into a river if you think of it as a, a person. You're not throwing your garbage in someone's face, are you? You know, you know, I I think about that all the time, and I uh, could yeah. could not agree more. Uh, so question three: What's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about your cause right now? I, I think the biggest stigma or misunderstanding is that we can't have a prosperous economy and a healthy environment. Mm. That is an absolute false dichotomy. Um, in fact, it couldn't be further from the truth, right? If we grow our economy in a way that doesn't respect the environment, it's actually going to hurt us in the long yeah, run. No more economy. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And we see there's lots of oodles of good examples um, where if we invest in conservation-based economies, we see people and economies prosper and nature prospers. Like the Great Bear Rainforest is probably my favorite example on British, coastal British Columbia, where we shifted from a, a very much an extractive economy that was um, not benefiting people who lived there and that was actually not even sustainable financially because mm. it relied on cu cutting down the trees that were a thousand years old to a now conservation-based economy that is much more diversified. There's ecotourism, there's fisheries, there's shellfish aquaculture, there's you know, eelgrass, like there's so many seaweed, there's so many different parts of the economy with my economic hat on. That's a good thing. We've diversified the economy. We've created more jobs and we're doing it in a way that you can sustain that in the long run. So it's absolutely false that we, we can, we, we can't have a strong prosperous economy and a healthy environment. Beautifully said. Uh, question four, what's a recent victory? So a recent dub that you've gotten personally or professionally that you can share with us? Well, I was really, really excited and proud in December uh, in uh, Montreal, the Global uh, Conference of the Parties Convention on Biological Diversity meeting, COP15, as it's known, was um, was held in Montreal. And and Nature United, myself and a team at Nature United working alongside dozens of other um, NGOs, funders, and most importantly, Indigenous governments, mm. came together and advocated to the federal government to make a, um, a what turned out to be the largest investment ever in Indigenous-led conservation in this country's history. The federal government committed $800 million to support four very large um, Indigenous-led uh, protected area initiatives across the country. And it, I was really proud that, that this government did it on the global stage and that we, we were there to support our Indigenous partners to be... Um, you know, advancing that. Obviously, they're not. It's, the work's not done, but that's a huge uh, milestone, and uh, we look forward to actually seeing those. Um, the you know the results of that in the in the next you know year or two. Progress. Ah, it feels good to hear that. Yes. Uh, question five. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Oh my gosh. Um, I remember my dean. University of Manitoba, um, the faculty of business saying, change is good, change is inevitable. Just try not to change everything all at once. Um, so <laughs> I've tried to live by that, like, because um, if you do, then you just get, 
it gets hard to kind of really move forward. Of course, I ignored it uh, when our second child was born. We moved houses and both my wife and I changed our jobs. Oh my gosh. Um, and it was chaotic uh, and all for the better. But yeah, I think just trying to take things one one thing at a time and not let let that overwhelm you. And plus there's going to be things that happen that you don't even anticipate. So, you know. Very nice. Embrace change, but try not to try to do your best to kind of pace things out. Awesome. Uh, so question six stays on the advice. Did you say you had a 12 year old son or I can't yeah, remember. Yeah. So, so what advice would you give your 10 year old self? If you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a 10 year old, what, what advice? I'm sure you've probably thought about this, having the conversations with your kids, but uh, what, what would you say to yourself specifically? Yeah. Yeah. You think I would have an immediate answer to that <laughs> as a father of two kids. Right. Um, I think I would say, believe in yourself. And believe that you can make a difference and get curious, figure out what it is that motivates you and drives you. And don't let the um, fast forwarding a little bit. Don't let your thinking about, Oh, I have to get a job feel different than I want to do what I care, what I'm passionate about and care about. And kind of back to that false economy. You can have a great job and a great career. <laughs> Took me a little while to figure that out. Um, but I realized that. And so believe in yourself. Um, do what what you're passionate about and things will work out. Hadley Archer, Executive Director of Nature United. It's natureunited.ca for more information. The last question before I let you go, what do you want to be remembered for? Man, you're good, Nolan. You're asking some really impactful <laughs> questions here. Um, I want to be remembered for someone who took advantage of the opportunities that they had um, I'm very privileged. I feel very privileged. And I'm at a moment in time where we know what to do. We know the scale of the problem. And we know that we have the resources to to get moving on a different trajectory. So I want to be known for someone who embraced that and seized that opportunity and did something about it. Beautifully said. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing uh, your story. Thank you for coming into the foundation and where we got to meet. And uh, and it's just been an honor to talk to you and learn more about this. And you've 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 truly moved my optimism needle up. And I want to make things better. So thank you for your time, well, Hadley, and my for everything that you're doing. Appreciate it. Well, you too. Thanks to everything you're doing and bringing these voices out and everything the Winnipeg Foundation does. Um, you do incredible work as well. So thank you. Thank you again to Hadley Archer for the wonderful conversation on, quite frankly, a fairly bleak and difficult topic. Um, it was very informative, very enjoyable, and uh, I really thank you, Hadley, for taking the time out of your day to talk to us about such an important topic. And thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed to Because and Effect, please remember to hit that subscribe button where, wherever you happen to be listening. All music on this show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can search Trenton Burton on Spotify to hear more of his music. Because and Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. To learn more about TWF, check out WPGFDN.org or search at WPGFDN on all social media platforms. I'm at Nolan Bicknell on all social media platforms. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. And remember, in every walk with nature, one receives far more than he seeks. Bye-bye. <laughs>